We've been blessed these last three weeks to see many, many people make public professions of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then announce that through the waters of baptism. I think it's, uh, I think it's evident to all that the Spirit of God has been at work among us here in these last weeks. He's been moving in this congregation in some really amazing ways. And uh, my heart is, uh, is full of, of joy and gratitude uh, for our great God and, and His um, sovereign good pleasure to uh, show Himself powerfully in a visible, very visible way among us. And I know you uh, must share in that joy as well. In the midst of all this, and uh, I, uh, I think there is a danger that we need to be alert to. My, uh, my reading of the Scriptures, my reading of the history of the Christian church, it tells me that whenever God is at work, the evil one is close behind. That He comes in quickly to deceive, to counterfeit, to seek to disrupt and destroy the work of God among His people. And so, here we are in the providence of God, I believe, to arrive at the passage we've arrived at this morning in the 10th chapter of the book of Romans. And if you would open up there to Romans chapter 10. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, we've got Bibles available for you to use. They're in the pew rack in front of you, or if you're sitting on an aisle, they're under your seat. You'll take one of those Bibles out and open it up to page 1134. You'll arrive at the 10th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. I really think it is the, uh, the providence of God. He has seemed to bring all these things together at one time, arriving here in this chapter and all of these baptisms all coming together at the same time and place. And the section of Scripture before us this morning is really, really uh, important, really instructive with regard uh, to what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a really important section of Scripture to look at together. We're not going to exhaust it this morning, certainly, but we are going to we're going to see it in an overview and then come back again next week and, and bore down a little deeper and look a little deeper into the implications of what Paul says here. But I believe that and hope and pray, it's been my prayer that by the grace of God, this, this particular passage of Scripture, that the Spirit of God will use this in our lives to, to protect us, to purify us in the midst of, uh, of all of what's going on here. You know, I'm absolutely persuaded by scriptural by scripture that it is it is our responsibility it is our duty it is our joy to seek to fulfill our part of the great commission that we are to be about the work of evangelizing and baptizing and if i can say it this way catechizing or teaching those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our mission in life. Fellowship with God, sweet and glorious as it is, uh, will be that much better in heaven. So if it was to be saved to just glory in Him here and now, there'd, 
we could do it better there. We are saved to the praise of His glory, but He keeps us here for a purpose. That purpose is to continue to make public proclamation of the amazing change that has occurred in our lives. But in order to do these things, in order to make that public proclamation, there needs to be clarity with regard to what is the gospel message. We live in a day of confusion. We live in a day when people don't speak precisely. We live in a, in a day when we use all kinds of expressions and, and, and words that don't mean what they normally mean. We, we give them new meanings. You can't even find the meanings in the dictionary. And, and so as a culture, we don't, we don't speak precisely anymore. And that is true of the church. We tend to speak in the church in very vague terms, in generalities. And I'm not picking by any stretch of the imagination on anyone's uh, public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but let, me just, uh, let me illustrate what I'm trying to say here with a short story from the life of my own family. Years ago, when my children were very small, and we would read them on a regular basis. We, we were reading a book to them about uh, Daniel's captivity and how he stood for the Lord in the midst of, of that pagan land of Babylon. And as this uh, children's book opened up, it was an illustrated children's book. And as it opened up, it, it was showing the, uh, the, the captivity the invasion and destruction of Jerusalem and then the captivity. And so in this picture, there were, there were these people laying all over the ground and they had arrows in them. And uh, one, of my, one of my children, very young, said to me, Daddy, what, about, what happened to Jesus? And I said, I don't understand, honey. What do you mean, what happened to Jesus? And uh, the, the, uh, I'll narrow it down. She said to me, that gets only one off the hook, by the way. She, uh, she said to me, well, if Jesus was in his heart, did the arrow hit him? And I realized exactly at that moment that for this young child, that vague, imprecise, non-biblical statement of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ had created in the impression in the mind of this young child that there was a guy living inside somebody's heart that an arrow could hit. We need to we need to speak of the gospel the way the Bible speaks of the gospel. We need to we need to be clear in in what it is we believe and we need to be clear in what it is we proclaim. Because there is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ alone. Let me put it to you this way. If I were to ask you kind of one-on-one, -on -one, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Could you answer that question? Could you give a clear and concise answer to that question and could you do it in a way that it's not filled with jargon christian speak words that have all kinds of meanings that are sort of attached underneath them 
that you are assuming other people understand? Or can you, can you, can you speak really clearly? Can you tell someone what do they need to do to be made right with God? What is the Gospel? I submit to you that many, many people in the evangelical church cannot answer that question. Pressed for an answer, they would not be really sure. This morning, I want to show you from the text before us, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 13. I want to show you from this text, and again, it's going to be an overview this morning, but I want to show you three indispensable aspects of the gospel so that you can confidently and clearly know the truth. Let me read for you. I'm going to just begin at the beginning of the chapter because we need to pick up a context here. Paul says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He's speaking about Israel now. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who call upon Him. For whoever, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Three indispensable aspects of the Gospel. The first is in verses 6 through 8. I've given you a handout there. It's in your bulletin. That first aspect is that the gospel is available. It's very simple. The gospel is available. Paul is contrasting here. Notice verse 6. It, it begins there, but the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. He is contrasting the righteousness of law-keeping Verses 2 through 5, with the righteousness based upon faith. The righteousness of law keeping and the righteousness of faith. He is contrasting them with each other. And what he is saying here is 
Very simply that the righteousness based upon faith doesn't require heroic efforts to achieve it. It is simple. And it is easily available to all who will believe. Even you. Even you right now here this morning. If you will listen. If you will listen. Look at verse 6. He says, but the righteousness of faith speaks thus. And he begins to quote from the Old Testament. He reaches back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30, to be precise. There, Moses is giving his final words to the nation of Israel. Moses is not going to be able to go into the promised land. Because of his sin, God has said to him, Moses, you will not enter into the promised land. So Moses is writing to the nation of Israel, that second generation, first having died off in the wilderness, writing to them here in the book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, his final instructions there in chapter 30 to the nation. And there in that chapter, Moses says to the people of Israel that the opportunity to believe and obey God always lies close at hand. It's never out of your reach. It's always right there for you. Moses phrases it back there. He says to turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. That opportunity to turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul is always right at hand. It was true for the nation there before they enter into the promised land. And it's true, Paul says, for the nation right now. Moses uses these expressions here, verse 6, verse 7, who will ascend into heaven, who will descend into the abyss. And he uses this as a contrast here to, to say to the children of Israel so long ago, it doesn't require a superhuman effort. You don't have to climb up somewhere really far away or, or dig down somewhere really far away. The opportunity to believe and obey is always Right at hand. In fact, in time, in the history of the nation of Israel, this expression, ascend into heaven, became a proverb. It became a proverb to speak of a, an impossible human task. Who will ascend to heaven? Who can climb into heaven? Became a, became a proverb for the Jews to saying, who can do this impossible task? Answer, no one can climb into heaven. Moses says to the people back there in those days, you don't have to do this. It's not that you have to exert some superhuman effort. It's not that you've been sent on a mission that's impossible to achieve. The opportunity to, to believe and obey the, the Lord your God is always right there. Paul enlists this this passage here in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 to 14, to speak now about the opportunity God is granting the nation regarding its own Messiah. He's saying in the same way that Moses said the opportunity is close at hand, it's close at hand now. 
in Messiah. In fact, this expression, who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss, brings to Paul's mind uh, the reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. All moving together in the mind of the apostle here and flowing through this whole passage. Just as the people of Moses' day could not excuse their unbelief by saying that God had not given them opportunity to believe, so neither could the nation of Israel in the day of the Apostle Paul say that we've rejected Messiah because we somehow He was hidden from us, somehow He was unavailable to us. We didn't have the opportunity to believe. It required some superhuman effort. Paul says, not so. Abandon your law-based righteousness. Not that you might launch out in some other impossible pursuit, some wild goose chase looking for God. God has come to you. He's come to you. And He has come to you through the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Verse 6, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? Verse 8. But what does it say? The righteousness based on faith doesn't say try and find me. I'm hiding. Come look for me. What does it say? It says that God has drawn near to you. He has drawn near to you in your word. In His word, rather. His word that can be taken onto your lips and received into your heart. Verse 8, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is that it is right there. Close at hand. Paul speaks of the heart here. He's he's talking about the center of our human desires and and motives. What does it say? It says, I'm right here. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. The, The word that calls for faith in Jesus. The word that is the very core of the message that Paul and all the rest of the apostles are preaching. Look again into verse 8. The word of faith which we are preaching. We are preaching. Paul's saying it's, it is the apostolic message. It's the message that we're proclaiming all over the place. The Messiah has come. He is available to you now. You don't have to look. He's right here. He is right here. And He's right here through the preaching of the Word. What was true in Paul's day is true today. It is true today. In 
in a very similar way. The nation of Israel had their scriptures. They possessed the divine revelation of God. They had all they needed. The word was right there at hand. Yet they preferred to substitute their own version of works-based righteousness. Back to verse 3, right? Not knowing about God's righteousness, but seeking to establish their own. They preferred it their own way. They were self-made men. They'd rather do it their own way than, than to receive the truth that's right there in front of their eyes. They acted like it was impossible to know. That it was a fool's quest to search. Can't help but be reminded of our own society. That word of faith, the word that requires faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the message that the apostles were preaching there, verse 8, is still with us today. I mean, we don't have apostles. Paul, Peter, they're gone. But in the grace of God, they wrote it down. They wrote it down. You have their word. It's called the Scriptures. It's called the Scriptures, and they're right at hand. You don't have to ascend into heaven to find them. You don't have to dig down into the abyss to look for them. It's not an impossible, superhuman task to know the truth about God. To know how one can be made right with Him. It is all around you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, as it were. Beloved, we live at a time and a place, a day and an age when the Bible is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. I mean, praise God for the Gideons. They place it in hotels and hospitals, wherever you go. It's sold in bookstores, Christian and secular. Publishers are constantly churning out new versions, new styles, new colors, new whatevers. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. You have a Bible in your home. I would be willing to bet that most of you have more than six Bibles in your home. But here's where it gets interesting. Do we read them? Do we read them? Or do we fall into the trap of the nation of Israel? I mean, they had the Word of God, right? Paul says earlier in this epistle, they they had the oracles of God. They had the truth. And yet they acted like it was impossible to, to find it. And it's right in front of them. See, I have the truth. You have the truth. One of the reasons there's so much fog with regard to the gospel is because the people of God don't take advantage of what God has given them. We don't read our Bibles like we should. There is a famine. For hearing the word of the Lord. Beloved, the gospel is not hidden. 
It is not hidden from any one of you this morning. It is in your mouth and in your heart, as it were. It is right there at hand. It's available through the preaching of the apostles. Recorded in the scriptures that are sitting on your lap. If you will but receive that. The gospel is available. Secondly, the gospel is radical. The gospel is radical. Notice how Paul goes on here to demonstrate the nearness of the righteousness based on faith. And he does it by emphasizing the fact that all one has to do to receive it is to confess with one's mouth and believe in one's heart. No long journeys, no impossible quests. It's just close. It's right at hand. No elaborate rituals, no sets of rules, no regulations to try to keep, no endless treadmill of trying to be good enough. It's available by simple faith alone. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Now, we need to be careful here. It is a simple faith, and it's a call to simple faith. But we should not for a moment think that this is merely a formula to be recited. That somehow the recitation of these few words is all that it takes. It is simple faith in the truth revealed of God that is all that is required to be saved. Yet that simple faith in these simple words transforms one's life. It transforms one's life and it, and it transforms us both privately and publicly. And it does so in such a way that you are never the same person again. Second Corinthians 5.17, right? You are a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. I want to look with you here at this radical statement in verses 9 and 10, this radical gospel. Before we Look closely at it, though. I want to just make a few observations. A few observations before we look at what it is that we must confess and believe. So let me just deal with a few textual things here for you. In verses 9 and 10. The result of the confession and faith contained here in verses 9 and 10 is that a person is saved. You see that at the end of verse 9? You shall be saved. Verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So the result of this faith and confession is the salvation of an individual. Now, down in verse 10, he talks about a man believes resulting in righteousness. You see it with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Paul is not distinguishing here for us two separate realities, but he is using two words to speak of the same condition. The righteousness, the salvation, verse 10, that he speaks of are one and the same thing. 
The faith and confession are, are linked together, producing the same result. The result is salvation. Do you understand that? Secondly, the order that he puts them in here in verse 9, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, is not a chronological order. It's not a chronological order, it's a literary order. And what I mean by that is Paul is playing off of what he's just said in, in verse 8 where he has quoted Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And so as he begins in verse 9, he says, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. He's just maintaining that symmetry of language. Verse 10, he provides the actual chronological order. A man believes, resulting in righteousness, he confesses, resulting in in salvation. So it's not confession and then faith. That's what I'm trying to say. He's just picking up the, the flow of the literary argument here. Furthermore, the theological content of the belief and confession that Paul is calling for are not different. That is that we don't believe one thing, confess something different. We're not called to confess one thing and believe another. We're not called to confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. What we are called upon to do is believe and confess two realities that together comprise the gospel. Those two realities are that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. Those are what we must believe and confess. It's these two realities together that comprise the gospel. Absent either one, we have a truncated gospel, which is no gospel at all. Beyond that, Paul is not establishing two conditions of salvation. He is not saying there are two conditions of salvation, that is, confession and belief. What Paul is saying that salvation is only and always a matter of faith. Verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever what? Believes in him will not be disappointed. It is always and only based on faith. We are saved by grace through faith. That's it. That's it. But confession Confession is the validation of the claim of faith. And therein lies its importance. It is the validation for the claim of private faith. That's why I say it's, it changes us privately and publicly. It changes us privately. It changes us on the inside. Faith in Jesus as Lord. Raised from the dead which results in a public proclamation of who he is. So proclamation or confession validates the claim for the inner reality of faith. But it is only faith that saves. Furthermore, these are all just preliminary observations. <laughs> Furthermore, the word confess, you see at verse 9, if you confess with your mouth... The word confess, homologeo, we use the prefix homo, we use it in homogenized, it means all mixed together. And legeo, to say. So put together, it means to say the same thing. To confess means to say the same thing. That's what it is, to confess. 
Now, when we confess sin, we say the same thing about it that God says. That is, that it is wicked and deserving of condemnation. But here, in this context, the confession that we make, if you confess with your mouth, is that we say the same thing that other Christians are saying regarding their faith. That is, we enter into this communal proclamation of faith in Jesus Christ. We confess. If you were keeping track, this would be the sixth observation. To confess with your mouth is more than a baptismal testimony. It is more than a baptismal testimony. But it is not less than. But it is not less than a a baptismal testimony. For example, in Acts chapter 2, Verse 36 and following, Peter is preaching there to the nation of Israel and he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice back in verse 36, Peter's linking of he has made him both Lord and Christ as Jesus whom you crucified. The linking of the confession as Jesus as Lord and the resurrection. So this, if you confess with your mouth back in Romans 10, 9 and believe in your heart is more than just a simple baptismal confession But it is not less than that. It begins there. It begins there. So now with these matters in mind. By the way, you know what it means when a preacher takes his watch off? Absolutely nothing, right? What it means is he can't see the clock up there. And is therefore not accountable for time any longer. Let's just take a look here at what is, most scholars believe, one of the earliest Christian confessions of faith. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Jesus as Lord. You see it in verse 9? Jesus as Lord. The simplest, the simplest Possible terms, boiling this all down, this statement is an affirmation that the man Jesus of Nazareth is in fact God. Jesus is Lord. He is God. The word Lord, the Greek word kurios, is used in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, made in the 2nd century B.C. It uses this word, kurios, over 6,000 times to translate the Hebrew word, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. There is absolutely no question 
that the statement Jesus is Lord is the equivalent of saying Jesus is Yahweh. The God of Israel. And the implications of that statement are staggering. Staggering. The first commandment is absolutely clear. You shall have no other gods besides me. Now, the nation of Israel struggled with that for centuries. But if the Babylonian captivity did anything, it finally knocked the idolatry out of the nation of Israel. When they returned from the Babylonian captivity, Israel was firmly monotheistic. So committed to the one true God, Yahweh, and the notion of only one God, that she would seal it in her blood during the Maccabean rebellion of the second century B.C. They would die rather than give up the first commandment. So for an Orthodox Jew, if he knew anything, he knew there was only one true God. And here are these apostles. Devout and pious Jews who are now declaring to all men everywhere, that the man Jesus of Nazareth is the one true God. They're giving voice to the doctrine of incarnation. They're speaking of the amazing mystery of the incarnation. They walked with Him. They ate with Him. They saw Him when He was tired. They saw Him bleed. They saw Him die. And yet they were persuaded to the depths of their own being, willing to seal it in their own blood, that this man whom they ate with and slept beside and watched bleed and die is none other than Yahweh, God. Verse 6, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. You don't need to say that. God has come down to you. He has come to you. The implications of this statement, by the way, are amazing. This means that Jesus is God. That means His authority is absolute. His authority is unlimited. His authority is universal.
This may not quite stagger us as it would a Jew of the first century. And by the way, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are addressing the unbelief of who? Israel. Maybe that's because we're just sloppy in our own thinking. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is, say it to me, one. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That God is one. There is only one God. Now, through the history of the church, people have struggled. Struggled to understand this. And it is a mystery. It's an impenetrable mystery for sure. Some have slipped into what's called modalism. That is the one true God that like a, a Greek actor puts on a different mask. Sometimes he acts in the role of the Father. Sometimes he acts in the role of the Son. Sometimes he acts in the role of the Spirit. That's not true. But that's sometimes how we pray, by the way. We start praying to the Father and we slip into, or we start, yes, we start praying to the Father and we talk about the Father dying on the cross. Beloved, the Father did not die on the cross. Modalism. Other times we slip into tritheism. Three gods. The Bible is exceedingly clear. There is only one God. And yet Jesus is God. And we come face to face with the doctrine of the incarnation and the triunity of God. Jesus is Lord is a simple statement to make, but it is loaded with profound truth. And to ask a Jew to make this statement is to ask him to abandon all that he has held dear. Secondly, God has raised him from the dead. Verse 9. God has raised him from the dead. No other religious founder has ever been raised from the dead. None. Jesus alone died and lives again. In fact, the resurrection defies all that we know about natural law, right? It requires the supernatural intrusion of the power of God into his created order to do something that from a human perspective is absolutely impossible. Impossible. With this statement that God raised him from the dead is packed in all of the understanding of who this man is and what he has done. It presupposes and embodies his life, his death, and the purpose of both. It is the distinctive belief of the Christians. And it occupies the central place in Christian preaching and evangelism. The resurrection of Christ. 
Peter says, Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Acts 3, verses 14 and 15. But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you to put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, for I deliver to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He was raised on the third day, beloved, as a sign and a seal from the Father that His work is done. That the substitution that He offered on the cross on behalf of His people was received by the Father and accepted. It is the authentication of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. He was able to die in my place. He was able to die in your place. Be your substitute. And then burst the bonds of death and live evermore as your Redeemer, your Intercessor, and your King because He was perfect. Perfect. The grave could not hold him. It could not hold him. That's a radical message. That's a radical message. Jesus of Nazareth. God. Dead and living evermore. Finally, the gospel is effectual. Effectual. That is that it works. It works. Verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be what? Disappointed. Put to shame. Using the words of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 28, verse 16, Paul throws open the door wide and says, Who will ever believe this radical message will be able to stand at the judgment. Will not be disappointed, will not be put to shame. At the final judgment, they will stand. Jewish law keeping will disappoint. It will fail. It will not hold up at the judgment. And so will every other man-made means of securing righteousness. The righteousness that God requires. The only righteousness that can stand up before God's judgment is the righteousness of God Himself. And that righteousness is only available to us through simple faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. The person who has, by faith, embraced that truth will not be disappointed. And by the way, this invitation, verse 12, is open to all. It is open to all. It is extended by God without distinction. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who will call upon Him. That is, that there is no one beyond the reach of this message. 
It matters not what one's economic class is. It matters not one bit what one's social standing is. It matters not one bit what one's ethnic standing is. It matters nothing. Anyone and everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Even those of us born outside the favored nation of Israel. Verse 14, this open invitation is not Paul's new doctrine. It's not something that he just made up on the spot. This has indeed been God's open invitation from the beginning. It was foretold long ago in the, in the Scriptures of the Jews themselves. The prophet Joel wrote, verse 13, For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. The question to ask yourself this morning is have you responded to that invitation? Have you responded? By simple faith in Jesus, placing your whole dependence upon His sacrifice for you. Giving up on your attempts at self-righteousness. Stop trying to earn your way there. Declare spiritual bankruptcy and throw yourself entirely upon Him. The Word is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word that I am preaching to you. Will you receive Jesus as Lord? As we close the service here this morning, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to meditate on the truth you've heard. I want to ask you a question, and I want you to meditate on this question. It's very simple. Has your life been radically changed? Has your life been radically changed? If it has, then in the silence of your own heart, I want you to reaffirm your belief in Jesus as Lord and rejoice in your salvation. If it hasn't, I invite you right now, where you are in your seat, to call out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And then I want you to join me over here to my left and tell me about it. When the instruments begin playing, you'll be dismissed.